1 Corinthians 13 is a passage that um, essentially extols the value of love. But there's one nice little sort of bookend to the the teachings about the aspects of love. And it, it simply says this, that now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And of course, uh, Paul is um, claiming there that love is the greatest of the three. Today, however, I'd like to disagree politely and properly and say that uh, many times in our lives, and particularly in times like these, hope is the one that is really the operative value of the Christian faith. I think we are maybe at the hump or coming to the hump or I'm sure we're not past it yet, but as far as this whole uh, dilemma of the pandemic is concerned, um, we're beginning to hear some sort of overtures of the startup again of life as it used to be, life that we now call normal, what we thought was normal. And so the, the, the feeling that comes with that really is the feeling of hope. It is just a, a little positive edge on what has been anxiety, what has been worry, um, what has been ser- terrible, terrible tragedy, of course, in many places and in many families. And so this morning we're beginning a series of studies in the book of First Peter. Um, that is the assigned um, epistle readings for this uh, Easter season in the Book of Common Prayer, and I mentioned earlier that we're going to follow that. And First um, Peter is a, a letter that we could probably characterize as being the the expansion of a theme called living hope. A living hope is the way that the whole story begins in. Peter's mind. And so here we have a person who knew Jesus well, very close to him. And now years later, probably some 30 years later, um, as a person who is a leader in the New Testament church, uh, the Apostle Peter is probably writing from Rome. And he's writing from Rome during some tumultuous times. Uh, the Nero, or the, the Emperor Nero, um, is is a cruel emperor. He begins a whole sort of uh, list of of um, those that are that were hard on their people and terribly hard on Christians, people of the Christian faith. And the Apostle Peter is writing to to Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Um, probably they were uh, Hebrew Christians. They were persons of the Jewish faith who had converted to to Christianity. And he was writing to them in the middle of, of trials. He actually uses the term. Um, and he writes to them to encourage them concerning the living hope that comes to us because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's a perfectly relevant and up-to-date book for us as we follow with many believers around the world uh, these teachings from the epistle. So let me show you and read to you um, what the Apostle Peter says and here we're going to begin with just a short part of the first chapter and then we're going to talk about just an even shorter part of that short part. In 1 Peter 1 verses 3 and following here's what Peter says. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Now we live with great expectation. Uh, this is the New Living Translation, and uh, the translation there, great expectation, literally translates or paraphrases the two words, living hope. So those are the operative words for this whole epistle by Peter. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials may show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you don't see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. I'm going to come back this morning and really only focus on the first three of the verses that I read for you just now. And uh, you will see on, on your screen the parts of those verses that I really want to highlight. So you'll see the orange phrases. Um, first one is great mercy. Second one is born again. And then I have underlined um, and made bold uh, the phrase, we live with great expectation. So there it is again. It is, the, it is living hope. And we have a priceless inheritance. Highlighted that for us to discuss. And then it says that that inheritance is kept in heaven which we'll think about. And finally, it says that once we have gone through the trial of our faith and held on and so on, God protecting us, um, we will receive this salvation, which is received, revealed on the last day for all to see. So I think there's enough in those words and phrases for us to kind of roll up our sleeves and begin to feed on um, the meal that the Apostle Peter is serving up to us. So once again, we, we focus all of this on the living hope. That is his theme. That is his topic. He's writing from Rome. He calls it Babylon, which was probably kind of slang for Rome in those days. Uh, later on in the epistle, he says that that's where he's writing from. So as we think about all of this, the beginning of the whole letter is Peter just making sure that he moors his thinking and his letter in, in the strong idea of God's great mercy. So everything that issues from this chapter on, Peter says, just stop and breathe in the celestial air of the mercy of God that all of the things that I'm going to talk to you about are because of the mercy of God. Two words show up over and over in the epistles um, concerning God, and they are the words grace and mercy. 
when we want to summarize how God behaves, we will often just say God is a God who's full of grace and he's a God who's full of mercy. Long time ago, I heard um, good popular definitions of those two ideas that when we look at uh, the word mercy, um, it's essentially saying that there are things um, that we deserve, or but we don't get them. So mercy is um, not getting what we deserved, whereas grace is getting what we didn't deserve. So mercy is kind of on the negative side, grace on the positive side. God is full of grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. But then largely we lean on this one and say, but God is also full of mercy. And that means that even though we deserved punishment, judgment, exclusion, he didn't give us those things. Instead, he showed us mercy. So all that Peter is telling us through this um, letter to the this believers spread around Asia Minor, he says issues from this this great foundational truth that God is a God who's full of mercy. So in that we see God characterized as someone who who kind of surveys his creation, who surveys uh, the whole history of us and him. And God says, no matter what I'm inclined to conclude or however inclined I might be to behave, the rule of the day will be mercy. And what a phenomenal commitment that is for us to meditate on when we realize that the whole history of mankind has been a history that largely um, has proven that we are culpable, has proven that, that we are guilty, has proven that when we usurped the sovereign right of God to be our, our ruler, our God, our sovereign, um, we messed up, we failed over and over. And so we might expect all the while that God would then judge us, except the story is that God always defers to mercy. Uh, Jonah knew about that. Jonah was a, a prophet, a reluctant prophet of the Old Testament. And God spoke to Jonah and said that he should go to a certain city called Nineveh because he, God was going to judge Nineveh. And he wanted Jonah to proclaim the judgment of God. And um, Jonah was reluctant. And after God persuaded him by uh, essentially having him fall into the water, be thrown into the water and be swallowed up by a group big fish. Um, Jonah finally went to Nineveh. And when he had preached the message of repentance to Nineveh, saying God is going to destroy Nineveh because of its wickedness, Nineveh repented. And the funny little after story is, here's Jonah talking to God, and, and he's, he's mad. He says, I knew you would do this. I knew you would show mercy because you do that sort of thing. And that's why I didn't want to proclaim judgment on these people because now I've got egg on my face because I said you were going to destroy the city. You're not going to destroy the city. And that's why I didn't want to do this because you always do this sort of thing. You forgive. You show mercy. So out of that incredible gushing fountain of God's commitment to mercy, all of the things that Peter talks to us about um, flow. So in these uh, first few verses of the epistle, 
one, I, one again of the first terms that, that kind of strike me to be careful to slow down and, and see what is being said, what that means, is the term born again. Born again is a term that has become very familiar, uh, probably more by uh, the evangelist Billy Graham's ministry than anything else because he kept on saying, you must be born again, you must be born again. Um, and apart from that, it hadn't really the traction until probably the the 21st, 20th century. Um, and it all began as a very curious thing that Jesus said. It, w- it was not a familiar idea, but it was an idea that Jesus came up with and he actually articulated and then Peter picks up on it here. Um, Peter may have heard it when it was first spoken um, but it was not a familiar term and so we need to be sure we kind of get our bearings on what is meant by this idea of being born again. So the story of being born again is from John chapter 3. That's where we are given the record of what went on and John chapter 3 is the story of a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a a Jewish leader, a religious leader, um, a ruler of the Jews, we're told. Here's how John records this event. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do except God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we take that for granted. We know that language. Nicodemus, though, was quite taken aback. He had not heard the term before. And so when he listened to this this rabbi, this great teacher, um, he, he says, we know that you're a great teacher from God because nobody else could do these kinds of miracles. Um, and Jesus just immediately comes back at him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He says, um, he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. An interesting little dialogue um, that at first just seemed like a simplistic kind of little notion Nicodemus was not a simplistic man. Um, Jesus was not toying with him. Um, and and when Nicodemus struggles with this, um, he said, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? So he's, he's, he's kind of pushing back hard at Nicodemus and saying, you should know what I'm talking about. What has Jesus said? Nicodemus wants to know, 
how do you get into the kingdom of God? How, how does all of this work? Because that, that's what we're all about. We're, we're all concerned with the kingdom. Now, everybody has, has its own version of the kingdom, its, its own interpretation of how the kingdom will come. But, but that is the operative question. How do you get into the kingdom? Or how does the kingdom come? How does God's kingdom appear on earth? Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't get into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, I'm, I'm not sure that helps. What do you mean? How, how can a person be born again? You, you know, you can't go back into your mother's womb and be born a second time. And Jesus said, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you can't be born again. And you should know what I'm talking about. Well, Nicodemus went away, mulled over, and I wonder where that thinking process carried him to. What was Jesus talking about when he said you need to be born again? You must be born of water and of the Spirit. The usual answer is that he's talking about natural birth and spiritual birth. Um, that being born of water is being born the physical time, and being born of the spirit is being born the second time, being spiritually born. I was reading one scholar who said for the life of him, he could not find any example anywhere in the writings or teachings of the time of Jesus, the early period of the Christian era, where born of water was, in his term, allocution for physical birth. So he could not find anywhere where that expression meant physical birth. So this idea that Jesus was simply saying, you need to be born the first time and then born a second time, first time is physical, second time is spiritual, is theologically true, but maybe not as, as pertinent uh, to this situation. If, if born of water had been an expression that was used um, concerning physical birth, Nicodemus might have said, mm, oh, okay, I get the first part anyway, but he doesn't. He, he doesn't get that. Jesus pokes at him and says, you're, you're a teacher of the Jews. You should know these things. And so as we search back into, you know, the recesses of Nicodemus's mind and ask, well, what should he have known? What, what was it that Jesus was talking about related to the kingdom that has to do with water and the spirit um, and that would be collected by this new idea being born again? It takes us back, um, it should have taken Nicodemus back. It only takes us back because we have the benefit of concordances and, and uh, study Bibles and so on. But it takes us back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27 says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 
The promise of the new covenant was what Jesus, I think, was getting at. When Jesus said, you have to be born again, and they could even said, how, how, how does that work? Jesus said, you should know that. What do you know about the water and the spirit? Ezekiel said, when, when God brings about the new covenant, and the first covenant, good though it was, failed. There was nothing wrong with the covenant, but there was something wrong with the covenant people. Um, actually, their hearts were bad. Um, they had hearts of stone, says Ezekiel. And because they had hearts of stone, they weren't able to, to have the living covenant in their hearts. Um, they only had the, the, the words on stone, so to speak, in their hearts. But they had no ability. They had no life. They had no lively involvement in the, in the covenant. And besides that, they didn't have the ability to do what the covenant wanted them to do. They didn't have the power to do it. So Ezekiel says, God's going to do a new thing. And there's a whole um, introduction to that where Ezekiel says, here's what God says. It's not for your sake. It's not for, for your reputation's sake. But it's for the sake of my name and my glory. I'm going to do two things. I will give you a new covenant whose terms are a new heart and my spirit within you. A new heart as in being washed from your impurities and a new spirit as in the spiritual ability, the spiritual propensity, the spiritual vitality to live a covenant relationship with God. So Jesus says, Nicodemus, go back and uh, dust off your scrolls and think about what it might mean to be born again. Peter, who may well, as they say, have been there to hear the whole dialogue, later on, some 30 years later on, says, because of God's great mercy, and that's what it all comes from, God said at the end of the old covenant exper experiment, it failed, you failed, it was good, you failed, you couldn't make it work. So what will I do? Well, Jonah would have said, I think I know what you'll do. You'll probably show mercy another time. And God said, that is what I will do. I will show mercy. And the mercy that God showed was the mercy of the new covenant. And Peter picks up on that, and he tells us that we should have praise in our hearts to God because we've been born again. We've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is not playing a word game with Nicodemus. He, he's telling him about the, the, the core of the provision of his death, burial, and, and resurrection. Peter says, we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, he perfected the plan of the new covenant. Um, his body and blood that we celebrate are the, the, the body of Christ which 
was the blood of the new covenant. This, this is my covenant, my new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. And Peter says, we are filled with, with praise to God because of his mercy, because we've been born again. Um, we therefore are fully ready to receive the kingdom of God. And, and part of where we will need to go, not today, but as, as time goes by, is to really examine what, what the kingdom is as it arrives. Because Peter is saying it, it, it has arrived. Um, you have been born again. So Jesus was putting it as an imperative, if, if we were to choose the mood. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You have to be born again. It should happen. Peter says, we have been born again. And if Jesus anticipated that being born again was by water and the blood, if it was by the the washing, the cleansing of a new heart and the provision of the Spirit, then that has happened to us. And because of that, we live with a great, a great expectation. Well, as we go along from, from there, P- Peter says, because we have this living hope, we have a priceless inheritance. A priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. An inheritance kept in heaven. We will... Once we have worked our way through First Peter, we will embark on a, a, a little study that I've called, um, with, with kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek title. It is, um, it's the end of the world as we know it, question mark. The end of the world as we know it, an REM song from when I was younger, and some of you weren't born. The end of the world as we know it. There's talk about that these days. Um, and I think, um, you know, spoiler alert, I, I think where the series will go is in answer to the question, I, I'm, I'm going to say no. But, and we'll explore that. The end of the world as we know it. Is it? No. And it takes us to thoughts of, well, what is else is there? What is next? Where is next? Um, and, and I think that people, in fact, I know people these days have spent a whole lot more time than they used to asking kind of tough questions about faith and religion and so on. So more people are going to church now that they can't go to church, which is a lovely irony during these times. Um, the time will probably come when, when that'll just sort of even out again. But the opportunity that we have right now is to ask questions about, well, if not this, then what? Um, is it the end of the world as we know it? It is the end of the world as we know it in some respects. Things will change. Things will be different. It may be the end of the world. I can't say that it's not but it may not be the end of the world, but it at least pauses the world. It, it at least stops the world in its tracks. 
um, and says, look at what can happen if all of a sudden one virus can bring all of us to our knees. You know, it, it just tells us that, well, if that has happened, it could happen, and what could happen that is worse than that? We we never envisioned 9-11, and yet what a, what a tragedy, what a catastrophe it was. We didn't envision this, and but one of the the upsides of these things is that we're 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 caused to stop and just ask questions about life, questions about heaven. So I'm looking forward to trying to figure out a question that has engaged Christians and theologians for uh, centuries and centuries, which is the question of well, what is heaven? Where is heaven? When is heaven? And what is Peter talking about when he refers to an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us? An inheritance. What, what does that mean? Um, we're told a little bit later on here, you'll see the, the uh, orange highlight. We're, we're, we're told that God is protecting us through your faith by his power until you receive this salvation. And I, I think this salvation, the only thing that I can see it referring back to is the inheritance in heaven. So whatever it is, it's stored away in heaven and we are protected by the faith that we exercise um, until the day that we receive the salvation and then Peter says, it's ready to be revealed for all to see. So, you know, my, my Sunday school notions of heaven being a place far away that you go to and that it's just us that end up there, it doesn't fit so easily, the, this sort of lineup of terms here where Peter is saying the, the great mercy of God has brought by the resurrection of Jesus new birth. You've been born again. You are new covenant people. The kingdom has come and is coming because of the resurrection of Jesus. And you, you are holding on through that, not only celebrating the new covenant that has come, but expecting an inheritance what is the inheritance that we are expecting? What did we inherit these things from? What are they? When Peter describes them, he describes them in pretty material terms. He says it's an inheritance that is pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Those are terms that relate to material things. And we might have thought, well, inheritance, um, my best guess would be it's got something to do with rewards that we, we get when we get there. But, but I'm sure it's some sort of spiritual whatever. Well, why is Peter using this concrete language? And why does he say that when we receive this salvation, which I'm saying must re relate to the inheritance, why does he say it's going to be revealed? To whom is it going to be revealed? Well, he says it'll be revealed on the last day for all to see. 
that begins to open up my mind and my imagination about what it is that finally is going to be revealed so that we're told all will see it. Connected to it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that, again, is in the context of his being revealed, I think, not to a few, but revealed in full glory, in in, um, full majesty to all of creation. So somehow or other, what's ahead of us is this, this wonderful place, state of heaven, um, where there's an inheritance for us that's going to be revealed. That the, it's going to be opened up. They're going to take the wraps off it. They're going to um, put the lights back on it. And all are going to see this thing, this inheritance, this salvation um, that's going to be revealed on the last day. In heaven, I said I'm looking forward to trying to just chip away at our understandings of what heaven is and where heaven is and what heaven is. We have fallen into um, a platonic, never mind the term, but just a, a view of heaven and earth as being one and another, um, two places, two distinct realities, never the twain shall meet. Um, and th- that kind of dualism has really reigned um, all the way through the Christian era. And we're, we're going to have a look at some ideas concerning how, how early Jewish and Christian um, faithful people understood the way that um, heaven and earth connect, how they touch one another. What has reigned through Christendom um, is a set of two typical kinds of views of how God is connected or not to his world. Um, The first is deism, which simply says that God started everything. Maybe he created it. Maybe he set all the rules in motion and he, he, he set it off on its course and then he stepped away. But he still is holding us, our feet to the fire. He still wants us to know that we're accountable and all of that. He still is the God of this creation of his. The second is Epicureanism, which is an idea that the gods, and, and it's almost as though the Epicureans would say, we'll grant you some notion, some fanciful thought about the gods or whatever, but they really don't exist. Um, the, the universe and all that there is just hums along, not because God is even there. You can pretend he is if you like, but, but he's not at the end of the day. So y- you might as well live well. Um, in some extremes, you m- might as well live indulgently. But otherwise, y- you might live with a notion of progress. It, it appears as though this world, wherever it came from, however it developed, is progressing. And, and all of that is good. You don't need to pay any attention to God. I would say that in our day, most people fall into one of those two categories. 
And here, here's the, um, the indictment is that most of modern Christianity, scholars would claim, are deists. Um, they, they don't really think that God is much in his universe, but they will, they'll attribute its existence to him, but not expect that he's going to be very involved in it. Epicureans are the rest of us who are basically saying that's anachronism, this whole notion that churches have that there's a God at all. The world is doing very well, thank you very much. We're getting better. Um, and even with something like this pandemic, we can lick it. We can, we can fix it. Because in both of those schools of thought, God is really not in it with us at all. However, um, early Jewish people of faith and Christians believed in a God who was in and through his creation. Um, N.T. Wright talks about this and says that we have had an unbiblical antithesis of heaven and earth. And so here's where this comes to roost. We're thinking that heaven is some other place that someday we get to where this inheritance is waiting for us. That's part of the whole way that we have thought through the Christian era uh, that God is either someone who started it but then set it in motion or God is not anywhere at all. We're just ourselves. We're just fine. Heaven and earth, heaven ideas or whatever. We don't have to keep anything in mind about all of that. And um, Wright says that we have this unbiblical antithesis as though there are two separate and distinct places called heaven and earth. And here's something to twist your your mind. N.T. Wright says that the view of early Jewish thinking and early Christian thinking formed out of their Jewish context was that there was a superabundance of grace over nature. I'm not even going to try to explain the words today, but we'll come back to this and find out, well, what does that mean? That there is a superabundance of grace over nature. Um, I think there are new ways we, that we need to understand how heaven and earth connect so that we're brought to a place where we live in absolute consciousness of the kingdom of God into which we have been born again which is the joining of heaven and earth, which is the kingdom of heaven coming and becoming. Is it here in its fullness? Of, of course it's not. There's lots that we need to, to clean out of it. Um, but Jesus says, Nicodemus, you should know this, that the new covenant will come by water and by the spirit, by cleansing and by empowerment. And Peter says it's been done. The power is there. Um, the resurrection of Jesus has brought that to us. And now we live into it. Um, we live into it um, enduring, living by faith, but with a clear assurance of a provision in heaven um, 
that is our inheritance which will appear, it will be manifest, it will be revealed. Um, I'm excited about what that must mean about how we live our lives now and how um, the space between this world and the next, the space between earth and heaven is that um, thin place. Um, God is not away someplace waiting for the time that the second coming will let us get there to be with him. He's here. Jesus is here. He's among us. He's bringing his kingdom. And uh, Peter says, you should rejoice in this. You should be full of joy because of what God has done. So I think as we try to figure out what this passage is is doing, and um, we sort of serve ourselves notice that we're going to dig hard into the kingdom and here and now and here and there and heaven and earth. Um, I think the two things that, that would rest for me this morning about this living hope are that, first of all, God is preparing us for heaven. And secondly, that God is preparing heaven for us. These are two great ideas, aren't they? What Peter talks about is God preparing us for heaven. We were not ready for heaven. We, like the old covenant people to whom Ezekiel spoke, were not good to go. We had hearts that were made of stone. We did not have a spirit of life and power in us at all. And yet, God said, I I will do something. I'm going to do a different thing. Uh, I will cut out your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. I will wash you, cleanse you from all of your wickedness. And I will put my spirit in you. So you will do what I want. You will do the things that are characteristic of a relationship with me out of the true person that you become spiritually enlivened. And then the thing about which we now will get to wonder is what does it mean that God is preparing heaven for us? What is Jesus doing in that preparation? And how is it that heaven is going to come and join with earth? There's this lovely expression about heaven kissing earth. Um, earth, earth needs to be fixed. But it needs to be fixed not in the sense that it needs to be obliterated. It needs to be fixed in the sense that the corruption that is in this creation, which we brought upon ourselves, that needs to be rid. And remember that what Jesus did was that he came in flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. He came to condemn corruption in creation. So that the glorious thing that God has is this earth in its fullness with the wonderful glory of heaven. Images of heaven and earth in early Jewish thought were more like heaven kind of being the shroud around earth. Um, they talk about the pillars. And, and, and there's this notion that it is, it is a wonderful, wonderful new creation that God is all about bringing about. Um, and so we get to watch it as it's in formation because now already we've been prepared for heaven 
it's getting ready for us, and there's a great day that is yet ahead. And so we are people of a living hope. Um, And we need to ask ourselves, how alive is our hope? How fixed is our hope? How excited are we about the hope that is before us as um, our friend Peter presents it to us? God bless.